Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for you, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now most of us will miss the deeply political overtones of this statement. Savior or Messiah was, the city of David was a thoroughly political category for Jew in the first century. Now we know that Jesus was ultimately rejected as Messiah or King by his people. And one of the reasons that we often think about or the reasons we give for the reason for this rejection is that the people of Israel were expecting a political Messiah like King David, somebody who would deliver them from political enemies and threats. Instead, Jesus came as a spiritual Messiah and his purpose was to deliver them from their sins. There is a sense in which this statement is true. Uh, Jesus did uh, come to deliver us from our sins and Jesus did not come uh, seeking to grasp power, political power, worldly power, into, uh, in order to accomplish God's purposes of salvation. But what is incorrect about this thinking is the idea that he wasn't a political messiah, that he had nothing to do with politics. He was a political messiah, just not the kind of political messiah that the people of Israel wanted, nor the kind of political messiah that we want today. But Luke, and Luke's gospel paints a picture for us of Jesus' entrance into this world as the beginning of a new political reality. And according to the angels, the way that the shepherds will know and be able to identify this king, the messiah, is by the manger. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Luke sets the birth story of Jesus within a large panoramic uh, context, a wide angle picture of world history at the time. He mentions the most powerful person, the most famous person in the world, Caesar Augustus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So he starts with this panoramic view of of the most powerful person in the world, the Roman Empire, and then he zooms in on this backwater village in Palestine, Bethlehem, on this obscure child. Caesar Augustus was a real person. His name was uh, Gaius Octavius. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he became one of the great uh, emperors of, uh, one of the great Caesars of the ancient Roman Empire. Augustus is a name that the Roman Senate gave him, and Augustus means majestic, or holy, or awesome, or great. And if you, in the history and archeology span and ancient texts, we find all kinds of descriptions applied to Caesar Augustus, words like savior, curios, or Lord, son of God. And with these also attachments of things like 
Caesar Augustus as the hope, good news, and joy. The people of the Roman Empire were oriented to Caesar as a kind of godlike figure that would bring uh, salvation to them. All of this is the historical backdrop which Luke has in mind when he tells us the story of Jesus. This Jesus was born under the decree of Caesar. Everyone had to be registered. So here you have late-term Mary and Joseph that are required to leave home in order to be registered politically. Registrations such as this were often used by rulers as ways to assess their subjects, to uh, account for them, to conscript them to military service, or for the purposes of taxation. And so Jesus and his family, like the rest of us, uh, is uh, subject to and vulnerable to political authorities and bureaucracies outside of his power, outside of his family's power, and unjust systems just like ourselves. And Luke wants us to hear all of this political language, the references to Caesar and all those things in association with the birth of Jesus. There is something, even though this is, upon reading it, a very domestic scene, there is something politically subversive here in the way that Luke tells the story, and it's the same for the way that Matthew tells the story. In many ways, the story of Jesus' birth is a critique of the idols of the Roman Empire and its politics, and I think that still stands today. Luke wants us to see that the birth of Jesus into the world does have political meaning and consequences, but it is a politics unlike any that we know. It is a politics of the manger. The manger is Jesus' throne. It is the throne of the newborn Messiah. It's that which marks a different kind of rule into this world. Now, you can imagine that the, the angels come to the shepherds and they announce the birth of this newborn, the Son, the Savior, Christ. How will we know who this person is? The sign is that he will be, you will find him as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Again, we hear the word Messiah, uh, you have to hear the political overtones. It's associated with King David, who is the greatest, most powerful, most glorious king, who liberated Israel from its many enemies. And so the people of Israel were longing for a Messiah like David, a royal, regal, powerful person. And the sign they get, though, is that of a manger. Now, um, the manger is not just a prop in the story. It's often a prop in various Christmas celebrations and creches and things like that. But in the Gospel of, of Luke, the manger is not a prop. The manger, what is a manger, right? A manger is a feed trough. It's a feed trough of animals, likely made out of stone or clay. It would have been located in the part of, of, of a person's house where the animals come in to stay warm at night and feed or drink. And it's interesting here that Jesus, there's no place for Jesus in Bethlehem. There's no room, there's no hospital, there's no place in the inn. And so what do they do? They clear out the manger and they make a cradle out of it and they place him there. And think about the significance symbolically of the manger. The manger is already a symbol of Jesus' exclusion from the world. It's a sign of the world's inhospitable, I can't say the word, inhospitable <laughs> towards Jesus. 
For one so glorious, a king, you would expect something uh, like silk, something more royal. But instead, what we get is swaddling cloths. And what are swaddling cloths? I mean, they are like rags. They are basically the clothes of the lower class and the poor in which Jesus is wrapped. The manger is far from uh, a glorious throne. It is kind of an anti-throne, if you will. It's a, it is a sign of Jesus' humble circumstances and of his humility as a king. It's helpful sometimes to contrast these things um, with the signs and symbols of power, even in the Bible. Um, you can contrast a manger with the throne of Solomon. There's a detailed description given to us from 1 Kings. This is how Solomon's throne is described. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. And the throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions. And standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. And the narrator says, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. <laughs> the manger is a very different throne. There's no gold, there's no ivory, there's no lions. There's just domesticated animals gathered around a box wondering why there's a baby in here instead of feed. And what about those who are sent to announce the birth of this newborn king, this Messiah? They are also humble. They are not the politically elite. They are not the cultured. They are not the religious leaders of the day. In Matthew's gospel, it's the magi or the wise men that come from the east. They're foreigners. And when they go to Jerusalem and they inquire, where is the Christ to be born? The religious people come together, the leaders come together and say, according to our scriptures, he's to be born in Bethlehem. But nobody goes with the wise men. Nobody goes, they can't be bothered. In the Gospel of Luke, the messengers are the shepherds. And we often like to romanticize shepherds, they're very quaint. But in the first century, the shepherds were, were kind of shady characters. They were disreputable. They were not allowed to give testimony in court because they were not to be trusted. And so they are considered social outcasts. But these are precisely the people that the angels come to. The angels don't come to Mary and Joseph. They don't come to the Pharisees or to the leaders or to King Herod. Come to the shepherds. And it's the witness and the testimony of the shepherds that go and tell Mary and Joseph and then announce his titles. See, the message of Jesus' birth as king into the world doesn't come to the powerful, to the worldly wise and the religious. It comes to the ordinary, to the outcast, to the foreigners. So, and you read the stories of Christmas and Matthew and Luke. Who are the people who get it and who are the people who don't get it? The people who don't get it. Caesar Augustus, he doesn't get it. He has no idea it's even happening person who doesn't get it, King Herod, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the middle class of Jerusalem, the comfortable, the busy, they don't get it. Who are the people who get it? It's the shepherds, it's the magi, the foreigners, it's old people 
who are waiting to die. Simeon, Anna, people who are patient and waiting and longing, those who are so poor and suffering. It's a young Mary and Joseph. Those are the people who get Christmas, who get the meaning of his birth. Friends, to understand Christmas and to receive Jesus into our lives, especially in this season, what is required of us is to humble ourselves. To humble ourselves before the manger, to humble ourselves before God's ordinary and unimpressive ways of saving. The prophet Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in high and holy place, but also with him who is lowly and contrite with the one who is humble. We must humble ourselves before the manger to receive the gift that the manger has to give us. And so what I think that means is a lot of things for us. It means slowing down the busyness of our lives, the fullness of our lives is a sign of our arrogance. We're important. We've got busy, important things to do. We can't slow down for God. To humble ourselves before the manger means to turn away from our unending quest for more stuff, more power, more comfort, more pleasure. To humble ourselves is to stop trying to find God in celebrities, <laughs> in powerful people, in wealth, in all the things that glitter and impress us. But when we humble ourselves, when we humble ourselves before the manger, we humble ourselves before the true throne of power in this world. And when we do this, what we receive and what is open to us is the possibility of real joy. So when the angels come to the shepherds, of course, they're overwhelmed with fear, but their fear quickly turns to joy. One of the major themes that runs through all of the Gospels' accounts of the birth of Jesus is joy. The Magi, it says from Matthew, um, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The angels say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When Mary who is carrying Jesus in her womb, goes to visit Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. John the Baptist leaps, it says, leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. Simply by being in the presence of Jesus, he knew something was different. Something was afoot. Friends, something happens at the birth of Jesus that breaks open our world, that breaks open the sort of closed system of decay and death, that interrupts and invades politics as usual. Something new comes into the world, something genuinely new, which is the very source of life itself. And in that, there is a kind of invasion of joy. Friends, the joy of Christmas is a reality that God has truly and really become present to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just up in the heavens, exalted and high above us. 
He is in the person of Jesus Christ, who himself is the hidden joy of all creation. To welcome his presence into our life by kneeling humbly before his manger is to find real joy. Christmas is about the true meaning of life. It is about where we truly find our joy. And true joy is only found in God himself. And what do we get at Christmas? <laughs> what is the true gift of Christmas? And it sounds like such a platitude, but it's so true. It's not all the things we give one another tonight or tomorrow or whenever. It's God himself. That God in Jesus Christ, he gives himself to us in the, per in the person of his son. In a world of death and war and conflict and darkness has sprung life and light that cannot be accounted for, explained by anything before us. Joy surrounds this child because he is life itself, the very creator of the universe, the fountain of life. And so even as we uh, find ourselves in the midst of suffering and sickness and death, there is the possibility because of Jesus Christ to experience life and joy because of the very person and presence of God to us. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he has pleased. Amen.